Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, that's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Miranda Campbell about reimagining the creative industries, youth creative work, communities of care. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, This is a great book. Um, It does a lot of different things uh, with lots of different um, examples from the creative industries. But I think at its heart is the title, the, the idea of kind of rethinking or, or reimagining, um, reframing the creative industries and, and thinking kind of differently about them. And the book has got a variety of different approaches in order to do this. And, and one of the big ones where the book kind of starts um, is this idea of kind of like ordinariness. And I was really taken by this because it kind of runs um, all the way through the book. So I wonder if you could introduce um, some of the, I suppose, kind of approaches or, or ideas that are in your um, analysis of creative industries with this idea of kind of ordinariness? Yes, for sure. Thank you. Um, so a lot of my my push in this book is to refocus the creative industries or in the title to reimagine the creative industries and what they are and what they could be. Um, in the beginning of the book, Uh, In order to do that work, I return to some of the foundational premises of cultural studies, uh, in particular, starting out with Raymond Williams and his proclamation that culture is ordinary from his 1958 essay. So going back there uh, and his kind of call to start our investigations or analysis from what is ordinary or what is everyday Uh, and thinking about what that looks like, not in 1958 when Raymond Williams was writing um, that essay, Culture is Ordinary, but in the 21st century. So Raymond Williams writes about everyday forms of culture, like maybe something like singing along to the radio or watching television or meeting with friends and kind of recuperating those things as culture, what we do in our everyday. But also that has, you know, in his writing, quite a positive hue. Um, Those are good and worthwhile things. Um, And I very much agree with that. Um, I opened the book thinking about this idea of ordinary uh, and the everyday through my own experiences and 
a series of anecdotes uh, about things I've experienced as a fan in the creative industries or as a teacher or professor of creative industries and as a researcher, a researcher in creative industries and having ordinary or everyday experiences that were actually quite disquieting or gave me pause about this thing called the creative industries and how I fit into it. Um, for example, uh, one of the anecdotes I opened the book with is uh, an experience of going to a very packed um, after hours show at a loft space um, and having a really good time at that show and enjoying the music and enjoying the concert. Um, but having this moment of realization while I was there that um, everyone, could, everyone could die in that space if there was an accident or an emergency uh, just by how packed it was and there was no exit. Uh, we all kind of bottlenecked in to enter as is kind of quite common or ordinary and, you know, uh, ad hoc or DIY spaces. Uh, after that experience and that kind of moment of reflection, there was uh, a tragic fire uh, in Oakland, California at a warehouse space called Ghost Ship that resulted in 36 people dying in 2016. So that sounds quite dire and uh, extreme, but kind of led me thinking to think about, you know, how what we take for granted um, as ordinary, these types of spaces, which are vital and important, uh, sometimes called safe spaces uh, for cultural production can sometimes also be, you know, tragically and unsafe. Uh, and the need to, you know, find better ways to support um, these spaces and the forms of cultural production they incubate. Uh, another example I start the book with is um, teaching a class to my undergraduate students in my Department of Creative Industries here uh, at Ryerson University in Toronto. And in that class, it just so happened to have all young women in attendance one day when we were discussing conflict and abuse in the creative industries. Uh, and one young woman, one of my students raised this question um, that really stuck with me. Uh, and she wanted to talk about whether or not being berated by her boss, that was just ordinary for the creative industries. And she was just going to have to learn to roll with that um, and get a thicker skin just to have a career in the creative industries. Um, and that really gave me pause about my role as an educator, um, you know, preparing students to go into the creative industries. How am I preparing them to go into what? Um, if this is just taken for granted, as uh, maybe a normal or ordinary experience of the creative industries. Um, in recent years, we've had a lot of discussion about the problems of social inequality and abuse and harassment in the creative industries. Um, you know, we're increasingly having conversations about problems like sexual misconduct, systemic racism, uh, underrepresentation of women and people from marginalized communities. Uh, and these things are unfortunately quite tragically ordinary for the creative industries, um, but shouldn't, shouldn't be so. Um, so my book is driven by an exploration of alternatives uh, and more inclusive working practices, again, from that kind of everyday what are people doing perspective looking for different lenses to make these kind of different alternative or more inclusive practices visible. I guess the book is also critical of how we frame and understand creative industries. And quite early on in the book, you, you, 
you know, you're quite open about you're not sort of retelling the entire sort of history of, of creative industries, but you, you do try and critique um, an overly sort of economic focus um, that comes with the idea. And, and I guess it'd be useful to hear, I suppose, what some of the kind of problems or, or the sort of limitations of, of just that um, economically focused definition are, um, because it, it, it kind of sets up both your examples throughout the book, but also your critical perspective. Yeah, uh, in the early part of the book, um, I try to look at where did this idea of creative industries uh, come from, you know, without uh, claiming to have a, a comprehensive history of the creative industries in the book, because most of the book, um, you know, wants to look at alternatives. But in order to do that, we first need to, you know, talk about what is the problem and where did this problem come from, and a particularly kind of overarching economic focus. Um, the creative industries. Uh, came out of a policy moment um, in the late 1990s, particularly in the United, Ki United Kingdom and in Australia, and then exported worldwide as an idea that this could be a way to regenerate the economy out of uh, post-industrial decline, that this could be something to turn to, uh, to stimulate the economy, uh, to, to create jobs. And there was kind of an enthusiasm and celebration um, about these forms of work uh, in the late 1990s. Um, this also kind of crystallized through academic work and academic discourse, you know, creative industries as a field of research, like uh, I am in, and researchers like myself thinking about what is the relationship between culture and the economy? How does culture contribute to the economy or what is uh, the tension there? In this book, I question if this very notion of the creative industries as a coherent thing or a grouping really makes sense. Um, in order to say that this has economic impact, a bunch of disparate fields have been put together. For example, uh, the IT sector is often counted in the creative industries, but also performing arts. So you might have dance, uh, large scale and small scale forms of cultural uh, production. I wonder if some of these things are, you know, kind of different in kind rather than uh, different uh, in degree. Um, but my main focus uh, in this book is questioning this kind of overarching economic focus that um, creative industries stimulate the economy or they boost the economy uh, as their like their um, main uh, reason uh, to be celebrated. There's been a lot of critical work uh, about this idea. Um, you know, that we do have, you know, uh, a growing sector of the economy with creative industries, but the quality of work might not necessarily be good for the majority of workers in terms of um, pay or lack of pay, but also uh, fair and safe working conditions. Uh, so I try to raise some critical questions about what are we celebrating uh, when we celebrate this economic impact? What are we celebrating for whom? And at what cost to whom are some critical questions I, I try to raise. But really, I try to refocus on social concerns. So, um, you know, putting the social alongside the economic. And by social, I mean people uh, and the processes uh, that people go through to create. Uh, and I raise the question of what does it look like to meaningfully and inclusively co-create? create together. If the creative industries do have this uh, potential, 
what is it and how could it be uh, better realized um, given that we increasingly talk about an experience of harm in the creative industries? One sort of answer to that is this idea of, of care and uh, that there's quite a lot of literature around care at the moment. But I think one of the things the book tries to do with care is not to sort of contrast care in opposition to um, economically focused versions of creative industries, but to say that it kind of reframes things like participating, getting control over creative practices, getting paid, you know, and, and kind of the book um, stresses, you know, that you know, getting paid is, is still important. And the things you've been mentioning there are actually about, you know, the kind of questions of distribution about, you know, well, who gets um, to participate, who, who gets in, I think are, you know, much more kind of nuanced and um, become, I think, much more, um, I suppose, interesting questions um, when you view them through this lens of care. So wh- where does care fit with the creative industries? Yeah, I, I, in this book, try to suggest care as maybe an alternative foundation or starting point, rather than kind of working towards inclusion in a flawed system. How can we maybe think about things differently from a different different starting point? And care is one kind of lens or way to think about also some of the problems in the creative industries that I've uh, mentioned or talked about. Uh, we can also see a lack of care, a lack of care in the creative industries or a lack of concern for well-being or for equality or, or fairness. Um, I think care for the creative industries starts from a strong critique of capitalism and the pursuit or celebration of economic profit above all else or above, you know, people uh, and their well-being. Uh, in this book, I draw, of course, on feminist theories of care um, that in particular draw attention to the work of social reproduction or basically uh, feminist theories of care. will say that's the work of, you know, attending to people and society to basically keep it afloat whether that's in our homes or in our communities, you know, also in our workplaces or in our schools, this is all of the behind the scenes labor that is often devalued um, and then divided. Um, I also see that space of social reproduction, that space of care as potentially a space of social transformation. Um, if, if, if it is not devalued, but instead seen as vital uh, and kind of, you know, foregrounded, it can be a space from which we might be able to develop better practices of care. So in the book, I try to articulate, well, what does that mean, care for the creative industries, and what could it look like? Again, through researching um, people and practices um, and what alternatives exist. But I define care as thinking relationally and how we are all connected or embedded in a web of relations. I think for the creative industries, we can also think about economic values in a web of other values and practices like social and cultural values and how those intermesh. Care, and when we think relationally, also means recognizing structural barriers and discrimination, patterns of overrepresentation and underrepresentation and social inequality that we quite commonly find in the creative industries. 
but also it's more than just recognizing that there are problems. I think care is also a way to commit to new visions or new strategies or new practices that are, are more caring or more inclusive. So care can be that um, different foundation to start from. Um, the book maps some of those alternatives by turning to youth and creative work that youth are spearheading um, to collectives, to not-for-profit, not-for-profit organizations. And some of these alternatives that I'm mapping might not be visible through an overarching economic lens. They might not be seen as important if we only look at um, economic profit. Um, but the premise of the book is we can learn from how to do better in the creative industries from these more caring examples. I mean, I'm tempted to, to kind of go straight to some of the examples which sort of form the um, later or maybe the kind of second half of the book. But I think slightly before that, and, and this is in, in actually intertwined with, with your examples, it'd be good to reflect um, on the kind of pedagogical or sort of educational um, context, because that's really important, both, I think, to the book's focus on young people, but also to the idea of having very different environments um, for the creative industries. And it also actually sets up perfectly some of the examples from um, participatory research that the book uh, gives in, in its kind of later chapters. So I, I wonder if you could say a bit about your kind of, I guess, sort of pedagogical practice um, and the role of education in creative industries. Yes, for sure. So when we think about um a uh, pedagogical practice or opportunities for teaching or learning or education, um, those often can be um, lacking in mainstream uh, creative industries where we might have a more um, cutthroat environment or a competitive environment. Um, but where can we find uh, space to, to learn, um, to try things out, to develop or grow? and to do that in a supportive environment um, alongside others. Those are some of the ideas that I think about when I think about um, pedagogy. I think those are important for young people entering the creative industries, but I actually think they're important lifelong, that we have those opportunities um, to, to grow and expand and develop in supportive ways. You know, at its best, uh, creative work might offer that, right? An opportunity to create, to be creative, to collaborate uh, meaningfully with others, um, to be learning, to be mentoring, to be teaching, um, you know, alongside others kind of in community-based ways. Uh, those things are happening. Uh, and I try to, to turn to some of those examples in the creative industries, um, rather, that, rather than assume that um, that they're not possible, that a toxic environment uh, is an ordinary status quo. There are uh, ways of you know, fostering those pedagogical spaces um, for education that ultimately might be more humane. What about some examples then? So the, the, the kind of second half or maybe the, the final sort of two or three chapters of the book are full of these brilliant and, and really kind of inspiring actually projects, but also full of the kind of the work that needs doing um, to make 
these very different visions of, of creating industries um, come to light. Um, and so you talk about, um, and hopefully I've got, got these names right, Sketch, Vibarts, and Artreach, and you also tell the story of uh, Rock Camp for Girls as, as well. And I wonder if, if you'd like to pick out a couple of those to, to, to maybe think through, um, I guess, kind of models of best practice um, for doing inclusive creative industries. Yeah, um, and that's a, a good way of, um, you know, thinking about what I'm trying to do through probably, as you say, the, the second half of the book, you know, kind of models of best practice for the creative industries from community settings. And so like, where can we go to, to learn about um, alternatives? And I do want to um, present these examples um, in some ways as inspiring alternatives. When I was writing this book, um, I was in particular thinking about my undergraduate students and kind of um, writing for that audience. And again, going back to that example that I started with, of educating undergraduate students and teaching them, you know, in the classroom, uh, you know, preparing them through my, the you know Bachelor of Arts program that I teach in, um, and wanting to be able to tell them, you know, this is not. Um, you know, the problematic version of the creative industries is not the only thing. It's not what you need to expect. It's not what you need to learn to put up with. And the problem is not you and just learning to put up with, um, you know, bad or harmful environments. There are other things, um, you know, in the not-for-profit sector, in collectives that um, might have more inspiring practices. But I'm also you know, cautious about being overly celebratory um, of that, of those spaces and that work as well. Um, it is challenging work. Um, a lot of this work is volunteer run. So it can result in problems of burnout. Um, and these spaces are also not utopic. They, they are, you know, places that uh, experience their own challenges um, in terms of working practices and fairness. Um, at their best, though, some of these alternatives or spaces um, are embedded in a spirit of reflexivity. Like, let's think about what we're doing and try to register some mistakes and correct them and move forward and do better. Um, so rather than saying any one example is the be all and end all of how to have inclusion in the creative industries, I try to say, well, here are some models of best practice. Here are some alternatives alongside, alongside registering some of those challenges. Um, I do name particular organizations that I've researched, um, but also say, you know, those organizations will change over time. Some of them have their own problems and challenges that will um, surface over time. But, you know, this kind of foundation of care uh, it's important to retain regardless. Uh, so, for example, in in one chapter, I look at some of the research I've done in the community arts sector uh, here in Toronto. And the community arts sector, I try to say, is a sector of the creative industries, um, but is less economically driven. The purpose of the community arts is not necessarily to make a profit or to produce, you know, profit products to sell on in a marketplace, but there's still economic imperatives there. People are employed um, in that sector. People go to that sector to learn about careers in the creative industries. 
especially young people, um, often turn to community arts in their community, community context as an opportunity to, to learn um, and to be mentored uh, and to access resources to develop creative careers. So I do say these are, you know, economic spaces of uh, career development and careers in themselves. Um, but also alongside that, uh, we can learn a lot from some of their, their social qualities uh, of care and kind of reflexivity. In that chapter on community arts, uh, across some of the community arts organizations that I research, I try to uh, name some best practices, um, including anti-oppressive practice, um, which can look like um, conflict prevention, thinking about how people enter a space together, um, and how, how we can kind of set the stage for people to, to work together, what diverse people might need, even to show up, you know, to be able to access the space but while they are there, um, how to work together. Those are questions of accessibility, um, but also questions of um, affirmation, uh, of validating people, meeting, meeting them where they're at. Uh, and supporting their growth. Um, I also um, register the importance of employing people um, and funding them and paying them to learn, uh, having entry-level positions that are paid uh, so that people can do that work. Uh, I look at the importance of micro-funding as well, um, even small sums of money uh, in terms of micro grants can be um, incredibly impactful in terms of, you know, allowing people to develop their own projects and be entrepreneurial in socially engaged ways and to do projects with their community members that have funding. We kind of get out of this assumption that people should be working for free or doing projects um, because they love them and because they're important. Sometimes that's even more present in a community sector where it's like, oh, we're being community engaged. We're doing things that are good for our communities. Um, so we need to put in even more hours. Um, in the community arts sector that I've researched, there is like a, uh, some thought and gesture towards, um, you know, making sure those positions are paid. But, you know, rates of pay and kind of, you know, quality of, empl of, of employment can always be improved. Other characteristics of community arts that I that I register are fostering relationships. You know, um, meaningfully thinking about how can we work together, how can we support each other, what does mutual aid look like, uh, opportunities for mentorship, for learning, and um, attention to pedagogical practice. That there can be spaces and opportunities for open exploration uh, or growth or learning. Uh, for example, one particular um, community arts project I look at in Toronto, uh, it's called Sketch Working Arts. Um, it's a beautiful uh, facility uh, and you can enter um, with in kind of a variety of ways. Um, there's kind of low stakes art activities that are out. Um, it operates you know, as a drop-in center so you can go and kind of, you know, create some uh, visual art materials are out and accessible. Um, there's a variety of registered programs. You know, if someone is kind of um, 
interested in developing an art practice um, in a more focused way, uh, for example, music or ceramics. And there's also entrepreneurial um, support in terms of, you know, starting a micro business or uh, doing community activism or kind of, you know, creating um, some sort of project out of a creative practice. We would call that, you know, through um, an educational language, scaffolded support, right? So there's support for the person that is scaffolded in. Where are you? Where do you want to go? How can we help you go there? That is, you know, driven or led by the person uh, who is, you know, seeking to explore and create and maybe also um, mobilize a creative career. So those are some of the qualities um, in the community arts sector that I try to register um, that might be specific to the particular projects or um, spaces in Toronto that I've researched. But again, I'm trying to kind of um, extrapolate or name some of these qualities and say, you know, what would mainstream creative industries look like if it was based in anti-oppressive practice? If there was a conflict prevention model, if there was, you know, attention to fostering relationships, if there was um, reflexivity on, you know, funding or employing people properly, you know, these are best practices um, that could better inform uh, the creative industries writ large. And this can be true, I guess, in the music industry as well. So the, the example of Rock Camp for Girls and the sort of broader rethinking of um, a, a music industry as a kind of community of practice rather than um, as, as various other people have written about as a kind of inherently exploitative, um, sort of highly unsafe space for, for young women. Um, and, and that kind of Rock Camp for Girls um, story has a lot of parallels, I think, with, with places like Sketch and um, so some of the, um, I guess, you know, again, standard practices of paying people, being inclusive, um, these kind of anti-oppressive approaches. And it'd be good to hear a little bit about that example as well, actually. Yeah. Um, Rock Camp um, Montreal is uh, an organization that I formerly volunteered with and researched and is a not-for-profit organization that is dedicated to fostering empowerment for girls and non-binary, trans and gender non-conforming youth through music education. So this is a very different lens on, you know, what the music industry is. Um, starting from the perspective of let's foster uh, empowerment um, for, for people who traditionally have not been fully present in the music industries. As you mentioned, you know, we increasingly have awareness that, you know, the music industries can be unsafe and exclusionary. Um, so, you know, what else can be possible um, for those industries? Well, I look at um, uh, organizations like Rock Camp as a community of practice. Um, though, you know, an exit pathway could be someone um, who wants to go on to mobilize a music career. That's not like the primary first, um, like the first imperative, right? It's like first, we, let's start from, let's make you feel confident. Let's make you feel well. Um, let's introduce you to playing an instrument of uh, your choice. Let's um, figure out how to write a song together. Let's have a performance and uh, record it. 
those are some of the things that happen at uh, Rock Camp for Girls. Um, so it does kind of result in, you know, the same outputs that happen in the music industry, like live performance and a recording. Um, but it's not set up that, um, you know, going on to being uh, uh, a musician is necessarily what needs to happen. Like, how do we feel good about ourselves through making music? These are kind of like the, the potentials of the creative industries from a social or a cultural perspective. Um, in that chapter, I look at the concept of a community of practice um, from Jean Lav and Etienne Wenger but also try to talk about alternative communities of practice because communities of practice in themselves can sometimes be exclusionary or mysterious or opaque. Like how do I get in there and what is it? And you know, uh, what does membership look like? Uh, communities of practice uh, are often talked about as spaces of learning by doing. You kind of come in through um, something like an apprenticeship model or just kind of, you know, watching and participating and kind of gradually getting more involved. But things like indie music community communities, um, you know, can seemingly be open, uh, but in fact, you know, reproduce the hegemonic norms of the mainstream in terms of gender or race or social class. Uh, Rock Camp uh, Montreal tries to work on widening access and participation, right? Uh, how do we get in here and how do we participate together? Let's not take for granted that that's an easy thing. And this is set up for youth uh, aged uh, 10 to 17 or the campers who come in. Um, but some of the premise of the book, like the community arts chapter, like these are good things for everybody, uh, not just for young people learning. Um, some of the ways that Rock Camp Montreal thinks about widening access or participation is in um, making learning more visual. Uh, so, for example, like commonly using flip chart paper, let's, you know, if we're working on site songwriting, let's write down what we're doing, the different parts of the song, so that everyone in the band can see that and know where we're at. So, getting out of the idea of like an individual songwriter who brings like a preset song. Like, here we are, let's kind of write that down together uh, using language that is inclusive. Music can be really a space of, you know, insider knowledge and being cool or uncool based on what you know. So kind of getting out of name dropping bands or genres and kind of talking about sounds or types of music uh, so that um, everyone can be on the same page about the types of music they're writing together. and also validating um, the interests that girls come in with or non-binary or trans or gender non-conforming youth. Um, although Rock Camp has the word rock in its title, um, pop is really kind of um, a meeting ground for a lot of young people um, and celebrating that, uh, celebrating the music that people come in with, going back again to that kind of ordinary or everyday um, quality. It's like that's the music that young people listen to. That's good music. Let's learn how to play that music rather than, you know, reaching for um, really obscure or, um, you know, more insider forms of music. What people know is and what they like is is good and valid. 
uh, and a good starting place for learning how to make music collaboratively. In that chapter, I also talk about, well, actually working collaboratively is still is quite hard. Um, you know, um, Rock Camp Montreal fosters, you know, groups uh, of youth uh, learning an instrument and writing a song together over a five day period. So there still are, are those challenges of, of output of product. Um, if the youth or campers didn't want to do that, that would seemingly, you know, that would be fine. But the campers do, they, you know, they want to write their song and perform it live. So it is a challenging kind of race of time and output um, and learning to work uh, inclusively or collaboratively is not easy um, when most of our culture and society is not really set up in those ways. We still have a kind of more individually centric culture. So even if we are self-mobilizing into spaces that are um, explicitly feminist, um, it still could be uh, a challenge uh, to listen to others, to compromise, to uh, cooperate. Um, and those things uh, take time and those things are not easy. I mean, there's so much more we, we could talk about with the book. There's um, the middle of the book has got a really good critique of, I suppose, some of the kind of fake um, or, you know, failing attempts to be inclusive within creative industries, often by kind of corporate bodies. Um, there's even more examples, you know, from, from organizations that you've been working with. And, and there's, a, you know, to take on actually the point you made about music being a particular kind of space for collaborative practice actually there's there's a big discussion of the nature of space and how it helps us kind of rethink creative industries but but to wrap up i'm quite interested in, in where this kind of um, agenda you've set out in the book and, and i think it's an important agenda for not just actually creative industry scholars but you know people who are working in the arts in theater in, in the music industry in film and television can, can kind of pick up this attempt at rethinking but i'm interested in kind of where you go next and and where i suppose the kind of uh, the next steps for this agenda are, or as, as some people do, are you kind of, you know, agenda setting with a view that you're going to move on and do something a, a bit kind of a, a bit more different? Well, both. I'm continuing to um, work on these ideas of care um, in quite practical ways. Um, as I mentioned, writing this book, you know, I had kind of um, my undergraduate students in mind. Uh, I'm writing a book, hopefully, that uh, they can read and find useful um, to learn about concepts and examples in the creative industries that are based in care. Um, I have another book coming out in 2022 um, that is uh, more like a communication skills textbook. Um, it's called How to Care More, Seven Skills for Personal and Social Change. Um, so that's not, you know, a creative industries focused book, but those are still, you know, where a lot of my examples come from based on the research I do. But those are skills like care or like listening, um, consent, uh, inclusion, uh, collaboration. A lot of these things are, are buzzwords now, like, oh, yeah, we should all be collaborative, even inclusion, uh, but are actually really challenging. Uh, to do well and to do meaningfully. So that book um, is a skills-based book. Well, as I said, kind of a communication studies um, 
textbook that could be used in classrooms or just, you know, for people who might want to develop some more skills in those areas. Um, I have, uh, you know, other creative industries focused work coming out. Um, a co-edited a co-edited collection called Creative Industries in Canada, um, that again is coming from this impulse of, of uh, refocusing the creative industries. Uh, what else might be visible if we drop an overarching economic lens? What other you know forms of social practice and also creative practice can we talk about that you know do have economic considerations, but that might not be the main driver? So that book is from a Canadian perspective, which is my perspective, but I'm hoping it has interest to people who are interested in creative industries. There are chapters on things like podcasting and creative hubs and stand-up comedy uh, and screen dance. Uh, so looking at, uh, you know, different kinds of disciplines and forms of creative practice um, that we maybe have not heard about as much in the creative industries. Um, and then I'm continuing to look at this idea of the everyday and lived experience. Um, I'm also going to be co-editing a book series, putting out short books. Uh, the book series is going to be called Cultural Production and Everyday Life. What does cultural production uh, look like in a more kind of ordinary or everyday circumstance? Uh, what forms of practice or what communities have we heard less about? Um, from a cultural production perspective, I'm going to be um, co-authoring a short book to kick that series off called Cultural Production as Lived Experience. Um, so on the whole, kind of continuing to work through these ideas of care and the lived experience and the everyday through um, a few more book projects that I have uh, coming out um, this year and ongoingly. 